0: Drew, I think you might be our most prepared guest ever. This is great. <laughs> Drew has uh, uh, printed out notes and, and pen and paper here. This is
1: awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan. You know, I just want to uh, blow, blow my shot here. At fame.
0: <laughs> Your shot at stardom. <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: Welcome back to episode 41 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert.
0: I'm David Rosenthal.
2: And we are your hosts. Today, we are covering the 2005 Booking.com acquisition by the Priceline Group. Now, this acquisition is legendary. And there are tons and tons of sort of interesting nuances to understanding the industry. So we wanted to wait until we had a guest with deep travel experience and, and really um, industry domain knowledge to make sure that we did it right. So today, our guest and uh, listener of the show is Drew Patterson, the CEO of Jet Setter and Room 77. So, yeah, we are lucky
0: to have Drew, who is a, quote, grizzled travel industry veteran, uh, to help us unpack this one. Um, So Drew started his career at Starwood Hotels, where he managed distribution and pricing, uh, and then jumped into the world of online travel at Kayak, where he was VP of marketing from 2004 to 2009. Uh, He left to found Jet Setter. And thank you for doing that, by the way, because you guys booked Jenny and my honeymoon. uh, So very much appreciated. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and he was CEO there at Jetsetter until 2012, uh, when he moved to the West Coast and founded another travel company that was quickly acquired by Room 77. And he served as CEO there at Room 77 until the beginning of this year. So thanks again, Drew, for coming on and sharing your travel industry knowledge. Guys, great to be here. Longtime listener, first time talker.
2: <laughs> can't wait for the show.
0: <laughs> we can't either. Uh, let's, we are ready to dive in.
2: We are. We are. And listeners, uh, uh, if you listen to last week's episode, um, you may know this, Uh, but if not, um, we are skipping the bit about asking for reviews and letting you know about our Slack this time with an extremely important message. We are launching the annual Acquired Survey, and uh, we'll have it open for about a month. So whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time fan, we would love to hear your thoughts and in fact this is so important to us um, that that it's it's actually more important than any reviews any begging you to share with your friends uh any any of the normal stuff that we do because um you know as as you guys know we often lament the lack of data available to podcasters and uh it's it's really important to us to learn more about who you are um some of those reasons include number 1 we need your honest feedback about how to make the show better and uh, uh based on some of the early responses we've already read you guys have been fantastic at doing that so please um help us out tell us more information um, we'd like to understand who you are so we can better tailor the content and the guests to our audience. And then third, we'd like to learn more about who you are to share completely anonymously uh, without any identifiable and identifiable information um, with our sponsors to to really help them paint a picture of who's listening out there. So, that's about uh, about all I have to say about that, except that we uh, we are sweetening the deal by saying that um, we will be raffling off one pair of uh, of Apple AirPods. So if you'd like to be eligible to uh, to win a pair of AirPods, click the link in the show notes, go to acquired.fm slash survey. It'll take about five to 10 minutes, um, and we would really, really appreciate it. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we
0: had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were... Already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild.
2: This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes.
0: So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion
2: Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added
0: arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room the team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics.
2: Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out statsig.com/acquired and as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So, David, are you ready to uh, to take us into the history and facts?
0: Let's do it, as always. Um, so many people, uh, at least here in the U.S., I think, aren't totally aware of booking.com, because it's very big in Europe, but not as big here yet in the States. Um, And they probably also don't know that it's actually owned by Priceline. Um, And if people in the US uh, think about Priceline, they often think about William Shatner and the Priceline negotiator, um, which is definitely a big part of Priceline uh, and internet history. Um, But that's a story for another day. Um, But today, we're going to talk about how Priceline, line of which booking is by far the majority of it is actually the largest travel company in the world. Um, and after SAP, I think it's actually the second largest tech company that's ever been built in Europe. Um, and has a $91 billion market cap that's billion with a B. Um, so just for some reference, that's equivalent to three Airbnbs, um, and it's bigger than Netflix. So, um, you know, it's uh, not a company that a lot of people know about, but it is definitely you know top ten most successful internet startups, uh, probably of all time.
2: Yeah, uh, and when I was looking at the, um, you know, when I said legendary earlier, I mean that stems from when we first started doing the research for this, and you just start seeing some of the the high level stats of. Um, you know, what a, what an enormous company this is and, and, you know, what a behemoth in the travel industry it, I think to Americans and, and even some, some Americans in tech, it's, it's pretty, you know, we don't know much about this company.
0: Yep. Um, Well, and that's why we have Drew here today. So uh, I'll start out with the history and facts. And and Drew, please feel free to hop in at any point along the way. Um, But uh, the company was actually founded in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands in late 1996 by Gert-Jan Brunsma. And... uh, Major apologies to all of our all of our Dutch listeners because I'm sure I and, and to Gert because I, I I'm sure I just butchered that. Um, but he had just graduated from college, and he this was late 1996, and he felt you know kind of in his core that the internet was going to be a thing, and so he decided rather than going to work for you know a company like most of his classmates, he was going to become an internet entrepreneur. Uh, but there was just one problem he didn't have an idea. <laughs> so he starts casting about for an idea of what type of company he would start. And um, apparently, according to, there's this great, great oral history of online travel that uh, the website Skift published that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, but according to an interview with him in this this oral history, he was having dinner with some friends one night and they were talking about problems that they had. And they realized that, that booking travel across Europe was actually a really hard thing in those days because you had to call up the hotels that you wanted to stay at on the phone. And of course, in Europe, people speak all sorts of different languages. So if you didn't speak French and you wanted to book a hotel in Paris, you know, you were kind of out of luck. Um, and he, and he thinks to himself, well, I bet this is something that the internet can solve. Um, so he goes and starts doing some, uh, doing some research and he thinks, well, it must be, other folks out there that are already attacking this problem um but it turns out that there there were no uh major online travel companies at that point um there were some of the hotels in the us had started having their own online booking system so he went on the hilton website he actually looks at the code for hilton.com and uh, takes some quote-unquote inspiration, according to him, uh, from how they manage their online booking system. Um, but he pretty quickly codes up an MVP
2: for a multi-hotel booking website. And he, if David, you know, if only there were someone to aggregate these, uh, these disparate one-off hotels that only, had their own if e-commerce system. <laughs> um,
0: and he calls his little project bookings.nl, NL for the Netherlands, and um, and that is how bookings.com was born um, and and in the early days uh, unsurprisingly again It was actually mostly Americans that used the site, Americans who were traveling to Europe and looking for a way to book online. Um, Because in those days, it was only Americans that really had access to the consumer internet. There was AOL at the time. Uh, Lots of people in common people in the US were online. But in Europe, it was much more still of a kind of confined academia type thing. Um, and, And average Europeans didn't have access to the internet in the same way so ironic because Booking ends up becoming such a large company on the back of European customers, uh, but the initial customers were Americans.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's, 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 uh, and it's really easy to forget to sort of the roots of the internet in sort of, um, American university and, and defense infrastructure. Like, of course it's not elsewhere in the world yet. Like it was brand new and it was invented in the U S and it, you know, it's, um, it's kind of shocking to imagine a world where like people are playing around with with websites in the US, Amazon's being founded in the mid 90s, you know, yeah. but like it hasn't really made it everywhere else yet.
0: Yep. Um it was a it was a different time. Um so and also a different time, you know, venture capital and in particular venture capital in Europe was um a very, very different kind of proposition. And, uh, and Gert had, had a tough time getting funding. So what he decided to do, and again, he talks about this in the oral history, and I just love this. He, he needed, he needed funding. So he decided that he was going to email everyone who he knew who had an email address because he figured if they had an email address, they at least knew something about the internet. That's a direct quote from him. I just love that. Uh, so he emails about 50 people and 18 of them end up investing, um, And he raises about 50,000 euros to get going, hire some early employees. and uh, and they start to uh, get off to the races, and, and what they evolve into, and this is you know where we're going to spend the bulk of this episode, and you know, want to bring Drew in here. Um, they really become one of the first online travel agencies. So the same general model as Expedia um, or or Priceline or uh, Orbitz or Travelocity here in the U.S. Um, and they're they're kind of three pieces to the business um, that that they that they start. You know, one, they need to acquire the travelers. Um, Two, they need to acquire the hotels, uh, the supplies, the supply and demand. Um, And then three, they need to provide some form of of customer service. So, um, you know, Drew, how does, uh, you know, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the OTA world, you know, how did all this evolve?
1: You got the basics of it, right? You know, all these businesses really are marketplaces about how they bring together supply and demand. Um, and it's interesting to think back to where where this industry was as booking.com was starting. You know, we were talking a little bit about who had email addresses and like it was all AOL, it was MSN, it was, you know, uh, all, all these kind of dial-up services. Uh, you know, and we forget it now, but but the real things that made the first generation of OTA businesses in, in the US were like Portal tenancy deals. Yeah, right? you do you remember these? It was like yeah. Travelocity got the deal on Yahoo, and therefore Travelocity was by far and away the leader in this category. But actually, you know, Travelocity managed to get a couple of
0: those. I think it was AOL. It was uh, it was Yahoo. Uh, I, I forget wh- which which the other ones were. Yeah, and of course Expedia, uh, you know, founded by Rich Barden up in Seattle, was was part of Microsoft in the early days, so they had MSN, of course. Exactly. So they had that as a as a pretty kind
1: of healthy locked in source of demand. Yeah. And, and the other side is, is, exactly as you said, was how do you start to get then a supply base uh, that, that fits with that, right? You know, again, early days, of the internet, you know, it, it looked not that different like than a newspaper, right? What are all the kind of categories of interest and how do we start to fill them out? Travel being one of those. Uh, and so what you saw with the first generation of, of these online travel agencies was they're basically just a front end to the GDS systems, the, the global distribution systems, which were used by travel agencies to make flight reservations, to make hotel reservations and the like. Uh, and so you had this kind of big supply base that was already in place, right? You know, travel agents always got commissions. Uh, and and these GDSs provided travel agents with rates and availability, uh, the tools to go ahead and make a reservation on a consumer. Yeah. Expedient travel velocity and the like were front end that the average consumer could use.
0: And, and that's one thing, actually. Um, I hadn't focused as much on, um, but maybe could you talk a little bit more for our listeners about this whole GDS system because it existed before the internet, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, uh, I think it was like 1973 when the, the first GDS was built. I mean, these were actually byproducts of the airlines. Um, uh-huh. So, American Airlines, you know, Bob Crandall famously uh, realized they needed some computer system to, to tie all their, their travel agents together. And that, that was the genesis for Sabre, uh, which is uh-huh. the very first uh, GDS. Uh, and of course, that, that then served as the underpinnings for, uh, for, for all of these online travel agencies for a long time.
2: Wow, the the parallels to the real estate industry are amazing here. Where you look at, you know, yeah. the, the MLS systems um, existed long before you had Zillow. Um, but there's sort of this, David, you mentioned Rich Barton, this, you know, Barton style data to the people way, where you can take these systems that you know should just be queryable by the general public, but have been locked up by a, a professionalized industry for a long time. Um, and it really makes you wonder, like, what else is out there that that has. Uh, um you know, private databases that are that are linking an industry together that really have the potential to be brought online
0: yeah. and so for booking and in europe, um, you know, obviously there's the gds in America. did the g d s? Uh, extend to European hotels as well?
1: Yeah, so uh, interesting point that kind of drives at the both the structure of the industry and I think part of what set booking up for success over time. Uh, you know, if you think about like what kind of hotels were on the GDS, you know, it was a certain kind of hotel. So yeah. like rough and tough, there are, you know, 500,000 hotels in the world. Of that population of five, which is crazy, 000.
0: by the way. Like, I think a lot of people in the travel industry don't realize that, like, five hundred thousand hotels in the world—that's a lot. <laughs> it's a huge number, you know. Or at least that you know that—that's
1: what TripAdvisor would would tell you. They've got hotel yep. reviews on, right? So, you know, again, that, that's that's kind of the biggest sample uh, of hotels. Um, but the GDS only has about seventy five thousand hotels on it. You know, varies a little bit from GDS to GDS. But the kinds of hotels that are generally on the GDS are. Well, going back to our example with Cure, you know, it's the Hiltons of the world. It's the Marriott's of the world. You know, it's the kind of hotels that get booked by travel agents, which tend to be stayed in by business travelers or folks that historically accessed travel agents. And so they were franchised and more sophisticated and had better technology. You know, it wasn't a a 20-room pension outside of Rome, uh, which is much more commonly used by the European traveler.
0: Yeah. And and that really speaks to, you know, we'll, we'll get into this throughout the episode, but the differentiation and the value that booking was able to build, um, while it was really hard in the beginning, and, and and we'll get to, you know, they end up getting acquired by by Priceline uh, in 2005 for $133 million. I mean, nobody recognized the value here. Um, but because they were able to build this proprietary, um, long tail marketplace of, of supply, um, they really had something no one else could access. It reminds me in a lot of ways of, you know, the difference between Google and Yahoo, right? Like, uh, on Google, you could, you could type a query on Google and they had access to the entire long tail of the internet, whereas Yahoo with the directory model you know, only had the head. Um, and so for people, Drew, you know, like you are saying, who are looking for something specific in Europe, um, it, was, it was booking or nothing.
1: 100%, I think, and that's a great analogy, right? And you know, where that really becomes clear, and I, I guess we're kind of jumping ahead to some of the consequences. <laughs> oh, we always jump ahead here. <laughs> but uh, you know, if you think of like, what's the advantage of having the tail? It's far greater relevancy. Yep. Right. Like it's the things that you actually care about. You know, yep. and the consequence of that is conversion rate. Um, so again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yep. the consequence of having all this kind of long tail inventory is, is far greater relevancy uh, than those people who are relying on just the GDS uh, might have enjoyed. Yeah,
2: yeah, and while we're while we're sort of on this topic of discussing, you know, the the OTA is basically a, a marketplace. Drew, before we kind of get into the the future evolution here, could you do some uh, some sort of definitions for us of online travel agency versus travel aggregator versus meta search? Like, h- how do these things interact, and and how are they different? Sure. So, um, you know, the lines are a little blurry, um,
1: between them, but, uh, in, in general terms, online travel agencies, uh, take reservations, they make bookings on behalf of consumers. And so they aggregate inventory from lots of different sources, you know, generally directly from, uh, hotels, airlines, rental car companies, and the like. Uh, and again, they, they will enable the consumer to make a reservation. Um, whereas meta search engines or aggregators, uh, are a layer of abstraction above that, you know, yeah. so they so that's search. Kayak, that's, uh. Um, exactly. Trivago. Uh, Trivago, yep. Uh, uh, what what TripAdvisor has increasingly done, yep. uh, you know, meta search where they're Google uh, Google's doing today. They're pulling rates and availability from directly from suppliers, also from uh, from OTAs and from other OTAs intermediaries, yep. showing you prices and letting consumers to decide what they want, and then handing you off to an OTA or a supplier to complete the transaction.
0: Got it. Um, so let's let's go back. We'll we'll kind of finish out the history and facts, and then there's a bunch more uh, to dive into here. Um, so a couple of years go by, booking starts to sort of slowly grow, you know, its supply base and its demand base, um, uh, in Europe, uh, shifting as Europeans are coming online to actual European customers. Um, uh, and one thing that's actually another side note that I would just want to put a pin in to come back to, on the demand side, this is really, we mentioned search engines, as search engines start to rise in prominence as kind of the front door to the internet, um, travel, and in particular, OTAs become one of, if not, I think, the biggest category of spend in terms of search engine advertising, um, because the the link between searching, you know, Google or, or whatever search engine for, you know, a, a villa in Rome and an online travel agency is you're so far down the funnel. The the It's a perfect type of advertising for these companies. Yeah, travel is a really nice use case for search
1: advertising um, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the two biggies are, um, number one, uh, it has uh, high purchase value, right? Yep. So, you know, the are relatively large transactions. And number two, uh, it's a very close combination between search and transaction, right? So unlike searching for a home, unlike searching for a car, you know, all these are completed online. And so as a first case of response advertising, travel is a really good use case. Yeah, And so again, you know, you saw the OTAs as, as the, you know, one of the biggest categories of spenders on Google.
0: Yep. Um, so booking is, is growing slowly. Uh, they end up merging in the year 2000 with another group, um, also in the Netherlands, also called booking, uh, called bookings online. Um, and that's when they changed the name to to booking.com. Um, a couple years go by. And then in 2002, uh, Expedia actually uh, decides that they want to enter Europe from the U.S. And they understand the European market's different. They need access to all this supply in Europe. Um, and so they come over, they look at a bunch of players, and they get very, very close to acquiring the new booking.com. Uh, they do six months of diligence. And then right at the end, right before they're about to close the deal, the U.S. Expedia board ends up rejecting the, de- the deal, vetoing it. And, and the reason that they do so, and, and this is the next kind of topic we want to dive into with Drew, is they're really worried about Booking's model, which is different from the US OTAs, their their business model. Um, Booking uses the quote agency model, which whereas in the US, you know, Expedia Priceline, Travelocity, and the like use the merchant model. Um, so, so Drew, can you, you know, kind of help our listeners understand what the difference is between the two and why the US guys might have been so spooked by this?
1: Yeah, it's funny looking at it today because it seems so obvious. This agency model is great, yeah. um, but at the time, uh, the merchant model was was uh, highly desirable and was leading to a lot of the success that that you know the big players in the U.S. had. So the big difference between the two, the merchant model is effectively a wholesale model. Uh, in the merchant model, the online travel agency contracts for wholesale rates with uh, with a supplier. You know, so yep. Expedia would go to Hilton and say, "We'll pay you hundred dollars for this room, and we're going to mark it up twenty percent. We're going to sell it for one hundred and twenty dollars."
0: So this is the the Amazon retail business analogy, uh, where Amazon's taking inventory on the items, they're you know setting the price and selling it.
2: And yeah, and, and, and the merchant actually holds. And in, in this scenario, the OT actually holds the inventory risk right no this is why it's oh, such a okay, great model <laughs> like, i don't have to you know as an ota i don't take any inventory risk i'm just going to agree to
1: what my 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 uh, net rate will be ah, if i don't okay. sell the room it's not my problem it's your problem uh, oh, i wow. can mark it up at that point in time as much as i wanted you know so again you had instances where um, the, you know one of the leading practitioners of this at the time was was hrn which went on to become hotels.com yep you know, but there are instances where, you know, they would have in New York City, like on sold out nights, they would contract for a $300 rate at a Holiday Inn. And they would sell it for $900 because it was the only inventory <laughs> left in the city. But I was wow. like, these guys are bandits. I mean, you know, wow. brilliant entrepreneurs.
0: But but so this, this is like, uh, if you can make this work, this is even better business model. That, like it has the best of being a retailer in that you get to set the price and essentially control the inventory but also the best of a marketplace where you don't take any risk on the inventory. Exactly. And wow.
1: actually, it's one, one even better than that, which is it has a negative working capital cycle because I collect money from the consumer when I sell this. And then I remit funds to the hotel 30 days after you stay. And oh, wow. you know, if it's a two-month average booking window, I'm holding everyone's
0: cash for 90 days. Okay. So that's the merchant model. That's what Expedia and the US guys have. Now, booking has the agency model. What's that? So the agency model was a kind of traditional travel agency model. That meant
1: that they were going to take a commission. That commission was going to be paid not by the consumer, there wasn't any of this kind of markup, but the uh, the supplier, the hotelier in most cases, would pay them a commission based on what they sold. Uh, and they would pay the commission after the booking took place, right? So if you don't show up and there's cancellation, you know, again, I don't get my commission against it. Um, and the commission rates tended to be much lower. You know, they were, uh, booking.com started at 5%. Typical industry commissions were about 10%. You know if yeah. so you compare that to the merchant model, which was 25, 30% margins at the time.
0: And ne- negative working capital. Negative working capital.
1: Or... So, yeah, exactly. Okay. exactly.
0: So you can see why you're the Expedia board and you say, you know, this doesn't seem like the right model here. These crazy booking guy started by this college student, you know, they have no idea what they're doing.
1: And to have some sympathy for them at the time, right? I mean, they were on top of the world. You know, they Travelocity yeah. had been the leading player. Expedia displaced them. Yep. Expedia recognized, and I think one of the, you know, the, the interesting things about OTAs, when you look at their economics, what drives their business, it's really the hotel business that that drives their profitability. That's a much yep. more profitable piece of business than flights. Expedia recognized that early. Um, you know, bought a company called uh, Travelscape, which was, a uh, you know, a, one of these kind of early merchant businesses then turned around and bought uh, HRN, which became Hotels.com. Yep. Which, as it happened, was, was powering the hotel business on Travelocity. So this kind of masterstroke, <laughs> you know, they completely undermined their competitor. They got, you know, they identified what the most profitable and exciting part of the business is, and they controlled it all.
0: This is like when... Um when Google bought Overture, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> this is great, exactly. And now you want me to turn around and like, you know, go buy some rinky-dink <laughs> yeah. thing in Europe that's so that's much less attractive. So the Expedia board looks at all this and says, "We've got the golden goose here. We've got the best business model. You know, people say Google's the best business model of all time. This might be even better. Why would we want to do the agency model? But in the long run, of course, it's the agency model that really wins here. Um, what what was it about that? in the long run, that, that ended up being better? Uh, so the agency model ultimately was superior uh,
1: in, in part because it was a better consumer proposition. Uh, you know, the merchant model wasn't so great for you the consumer because I had to pay you up front right. uh, as opposed to the agency model where I could cancel if I wanted to. I had a lot more flexibility. It also wasn't so great for the supplier, you know, from the standpoint of a hotelier, I don't really like this merchant model thing where I'm paying you 30%, you know, you have more control over setting price, you're keeping cash, not me. So, you know, that wasn't great. but again, in, you know, in fairness to the Expedia board, they kind of looked at the world and were like, you know, we're, we're in the dominant position. Why yeah. do we need to move away from this? And I, I think what they failed to realize was just the size and magnitude of this market. Yeah. Uh, and the level of, you know, just the, the, the power and the potential of how quickly this was gonna grow. That in combination with what we were talking earlier, uh, the potential for AdWords, you know, a yeah. really kind of cost-effective tool uh, that would allow a business and an online travel agency to, to scale pretty quickly. And where those things came together was, again, going back to the point we are making earlier, was the long tail. Um, because this, this agency model made it really easy for Booking.com to clean up the long tail very cost-effectively and very quickly. It was a much lighter weight approach to contracting, got a lot more hotels on board quickly. Yep. You know, they didn't have to go out and negotiate for net rates with, uh, with an individual hotel. You could just fill out Gert's form, send it back, you know, and away you go.
0: <laughs> and this is, uh, <laughs> um, I forgot to put it in our notes, but, but also in the, in the oral history with Gert, um, when he, when he started, the way he onboarded hotels is, is he sent them postcards essentially with like a form to fill out on the card if they wanted to be included in the, in the marketplace. And then they just, you know, mailed it back to them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Pretty structured amazing. data,
1: it's yeah. really efficient. E- e-commerce at its best. Right? Yeah, e-commerce <laughs> right. at its
0: best. Hey, M- MVP, bootstrapping.
1: <laughs> well, the, the right. dirty secret behind the, the, uh, you know, the merchant model was for for the longest time, I mean, literally, you know, up until probably five years ago, like, a huge chunk of reservations were delivered by fax machine.
0: Right. So, you know,
1: <laughs> you were you were making reservations on maybe, maybe it was 10 years ago, but yeah, yeah you know. Well, was, I bet a lot
0: of these hotels, you know, might not have had internet connections. Um, so you had to, it was kinda like, you know, kinda like the early days of of the food market and Grubhub and Seamless, you know. Those were all orders delivered by fax machine too.
2: Yeah, totally. Right, right. Internet, let alone having Wi-Fi marked on your booking.com reservation. <laughs> well, one point I want to make here before we move on is that there's an incredible similarity to the ebook market here. I mean, we when we talked with Brad Stone, I don't think we we discussed uh, discussed this on the show since we were talking about the, the Uber Didi deal, but he talks so much in the, the everything store um, about the struggle that Amazon went through with uh, with ebook pricing and um, the 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 wholesale versus the agency model there, where Amazon yep. kind of prefers this wholesale model, where they can uh, pay a fixed price for something, and then they have all the pricing control and can market up and down however they want. And they have incredibly sophisticated variable pricing to do that. But the sort of, I think it was the European, um, uh, some kind of EU book consortium that really had a lot of power in this industry and forced them to, to use the agency model. And it was a hmm. big concession they had to make when, when going to market.
0: Hmm. And I wonder, I mean, to, that must have been a big piece that ultimately led to the development of Marketplace within within Amazon. Gotta be. Which gotta is, be you know why Amazon is what it is today, power yeah, of marketplaces.
2: It is. And that's truly one of my favorite things about the, about this show is like seeing the patterns between different industries. They, they evolve at different speeds. They evolve, um, you know, with, with, uh, different waves of technology. But, um, at the end of the day, there's really only so many business models and there's really only, you know, a, a, a finite number of ways that, um, different players in an industry can interact with each other. And we kind of see the, the same playbook roll out over and over again.
0: Are, are you, you know, making an apologist argument for venture capitalists, Ben? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you might think.
0: <laughs> uh, we're not self-serving on acquired at all. Um, so back to the history and facts. Um, all this happens. Expedia ends up passing, leaves Booking and, and Gert at the altar. Um and then Gert uh, makes makes a decision, which probably and he talks about this. You know, made the right sense for him at the time. They just you know had this deal fall through. He ends up selling Booking.com, uh, not to Priceline but to an investor group. Um, so a, a major European investor group, a consortium, you know, comes in and and acquires a majority stake in, in Booking. Um, this is in two thousand two, two thousand three, um, and then over the next couple of years. There's, there's kind of one guy sort of in the U.S. that starts to see what we were just talking about with the power of the agency model and starts to wonder about the future of how long kind of the, the music can keep playing with the merchant model. And that guy's name is Glenn Fogel who is now the CEO of the Priceline group, which includes booking, of course. But at the time, he was Priceline, which was just Priceline. Uh, The Priceline group also includes Kayak and OpenTable now, Um, perhaps future shows. Um, But at the time, Glenn was the head of M&A for for Priceline. Um, And he comes over to Europe, and and he starts digging in and, and realizes this dynamic with the agency model that it really does align uh, interests better and incentives between the travelers and the hotels. Um, and, and not only that, but people in Europe also travel a lot more than they do in the U S cause you know, we're workaholics here and we don't take as much vacation. So you've got kind of a better product model, a more active customer base. Um, and he starts to argue within Priceline that they should really start acquiring some of these companies. Um, so the first acquisition that they make led by Glenn, um, is, is actually not booking, but a company in the UK in Cambridge, England called active hotels, which is very similar to booking, uh, was larger in the UK than on the continent. Um, they acquire that in 2004 for 165 million. Um, and then later in the summer of 2005, they do finally acquire Booking uh, for $133 million, as we mentioned. Um, they merge it with active hotels in the UK, uh, and they keep the Booking.com name, so the combined entity is Booking.com. Um, and when they do that, in total, they now have 18,000 properties across all of Europe, um, 18,000 hotels on the on the system, which is way, way more than any other online travel agency in the whole world now. And, and so Priceline, this is kind of a masterstroke. they build through acquisition, the largest online travel agency in the world, with two, you know, sub $200 million deals, <laughs> kind of amazing.
2: Yeah. So question for Drew is, do, do you think that they needed to do the acquisitions to do this, to sort of like bring that agency model into the Priceline group? Or could they have taken their existing supply and demand since they already had had some scale um, and, and really reinvent that and kind of copy that model themselves?
1: I think it's tough to see. And I guess it, it particularly plays out when you look at sort of subsequent history. Um, I think it's tough to see Priceline doing this on their own. Um, in, in part, you also, I think, have to look at the context for Priceline to make this acquisition and why they're able to do it. Like Priceline, you know, made efforts to to go to market in Europe. Um, you know, again, remember this is 2004, you know, this is kind of the, the depths of the dot-com bust. Uh, you know, Priceline had been been one of the biggest success stories of, you know, web 1.0, right? Yeah. Like we all remember William Shatner, you know, Delta <laughs> made a billion dollars, you, know, partic- you know, getting warrants in in Priceline, selling them at the top of the market, you know, looked like a genius. Yeah. And Priceline, you know, Priceline had moved into name your own price, dog food, name your own <laughs> groceries, price, groceries, everything. name your own price, yeah, gasoline. Great, I mean, it
0: was just like all over the place. There's a great history or partial history of, of Priceline you know in the in the internet bubble in the book eboys which is about um the early days of, of benchmark the venture capital firm they were the venture investors behind Priceline and um You know, the initial Priceline, like it was, it was crazy. (laughs) Drew, like you said, I mean, it wasn't, it evolved into travel because that was the only thing that made sense that they did. But originally it was (laughs) name your own price for anything. So these guys didn't look like masters of the universe at the time, right? I mean, they looked like, you know, yesterday's (laughs) news who were trying
1: to figure out a plan B, you know, Priceline had actually tried to go into Europe. You know, they had hired, uh, I heard the story once that, you know, they had hired a like former marketer from Burger King to, you know, make Priceline name your own price a big deal in Europe and like totally flopped. Right. So you can imagine, you know, Glenn sitting in Priceline and be like, no, no, we need to go back to Europe and we need to get big and travel. You know, it wasn't like they were coming from a position of strength where they yeah. had both the capabilities uh, and, and, and position to do this. Uh, and I think, again, it's, you know, it's absolutely to Glenn's credit to recognize what they did. And, and you know, again, a common position for a lot of the U.S. companies. You know, Travelocity tried to go into Europe. Expedia tried to go into Europe. A lot of U.S. companies have tried to go into Europe and and, and really struggled. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for that. And again, yeah, you know, we, we kind of touched on it briefly earlier. Um, it's a cultural issues, you know, um, yeah. for big U.S. companies, you know, the U.S. was this kind of dominant, formative experience. Everyone speaks the same language. You have national advertising. Uh, you know, you are building a single... Uh, you know, monolithic brand uh, that serves across U.S. as a market. Europe doesn't really work that way. You know, U.K. is a different market than France, than Germany, than Spain, than Italy, than the Dutch. You know, they all have their own languages. They all have their own domains. Like, they all have their own marketing yep. channels. You know, you have your own country managers. It's a much more complex and nuanced way to start to go <laughs> to market. Um, and, and so you can see why some of the U.S. travel companies really struggled as they tried to build this on their own um, and, and why, from the standpoint of, you know, somebody like Glenn, the thought of, like, hiring some Dutch who probably speak a bunch of different languages languages, you know, know how to work with all these different cultures, you know, great, go, go let them do their thing. Yeah. Um,
0: well, and do their thing. They did. Um, you know, another kind of theme that we see on this show a lot is um, Glenn and the Priceline group, group um, you know, let them alone to do their thing. And so they acquired them in 2005. They complete the merger with, you know, within Priceline of active hotels and, and booking.com. In 2005, they do collectively 18.7 million room nights booked. Um, or sorry, that was in 2006 after after the merger, um, and that grows from 18.7. Then over the next ten years, such that last year, 2016, they did over half a billion room nights. So that's over forty percent growth per year for 10 years. Um and the financials on that are just pretty staggering. I mean, Priceline, uh the company the group as a whole did 10.7 billion revenue, uh billion dollars in revenue in 2016. And of that, booking.com, which again, remember they paid a combined, you know, uh what is that? Uh, 290 million dollars for active and booking, uh they did 7.8 billion dollars of that. Uh, pretty <laughs> incredible.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amazing they break that out too, because I think, you know, while while they're separate properties, Drew, do you know if if they cross pollinate the uh the supply between the front ends for uh for priceline dot com and for uh for booking dot com?
1: No, they don't. They have their own supply wow. teams. You know, I think one of the things that has defined Priceline's management strategy is the group has let the businesses do their thing. Uh, you know, so again, today, Priceline is is Kayak, Agoda, um, uh, Booking.com, you know, the core Priceline yeah. brand, and, and Open I think table. it's car rentals, and then OpenTable. They have they a car
0: rentals business too, yep.
1: But each of those businesses has been largely left to, to, uh, you know, fend for itself and, and, and make decisions that are right for its business. They don't really do a whole lot of, of kind of company, you know, corporate level, uh, cross pollination. And yeah. especially at this point in time, you know, some more recently they've done a little bit more, but certainly through, through these, you know, incredibly explosive years of growth, uh,
0: the, each of the businesses are run autonomously. Um, well, and that's sort of, so, so that kind of, you know, wraps up the history and facts here, but, but one just sort of fun side note in, in doing the research, uh, that Drew, had wanted to ask your thoughts on, um, what's really crazy to me, this is such a big market. I mean, again, Priceline Group, you know, we said at the top of the show, $90 billion market cap, you know, that's three Airbnbs and more than Netflix. Um, and, and it's not like Expedia is a small company either, or any of these other companies. Um, but the industry is so small, people wise, like it's it's a total cabal and like, you know, reading the skiffed oral history and, um, you know, all of these folks who are the major players, you know, bounce between company to company. I mean, even you, you've been a jet setter, you've been a room 77. It's all such a small world. Why are there not, you know, why is this not flooded with entrepreneurs? <laughs> Gosh, I, I mean, I guess. Great, great question. In part,
1: I would say um, there was a moment where it was flooded with a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of company formation that led to these businesses, you know, so if you look at, 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 you know, it, Take take Expedia today. Uh, you know, Expedia is the sum of Expedia plus Travelocity plus orbits plus what if yep. Travelocity was a combination of preview travel and yep. and and Hotwire's hot uh, wires in there too. Yeah, hot wires in the mix. So you have a ton of businesses yep. um, that were built, you know, that ultimately have consolidated to a relatively limited number of platform, two platforms, Expedia and Priceline. You know, I guess you could look at C Trip uh, you know, as, China, as a third yep. one in Asia, you know, maybe TripAdvisor. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think also the number, the the amount of required connectivity between um, all these different entities is is kind of a high technical bar to get started. And I think that these these businesses, you know, uh, kind of aggregation theory in play here, are scale businesses. So that you know, if in order to provide a lot of people. Have new ideas for how to make the, the 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 you know travel booking experience better and the trip planning experience better. And I think you know it's almost become a trope that like if you go to a startup weekend, you're going to see somebody pitching a better a better way to to plan trips and and do something in that space. But it it seems like it's just really hard to to execute as the bar has gotten higher and higher with uh with these established businesses.
1: Yeah, I, I, for sure. You know, I. I certainly see a number of entrepreneurs, you know, want to pitch ideas for, for, for better startups. You know, the question is what does better mean in this category? And I think yeah. booking has been, you know, the, the, the illustration of that better as booking defined it is higher converting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, one confuses, you know, consumer satisfaction with, with, you know business model efficacy. Uh, you know if you can find a way to get uh, more clicks or and more bookings out of a given visitor, you've got a better mousetrap. Uh, but but you know that's a less sexy idea than than helping people plan better honeymoons. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, well, one thing on this front on innovation and entrepreneurship in the entrepreneurialism in the travel industry, I want to come back to maybe maybe in tech themes um, is of course Airbnb, uh, which is a wholly different approach to uh, to this industry, but is nonetheless still the travel industry.
2: We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring, Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple.
0: Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired, Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product.
2: Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly,
0: your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence.
2: So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise, and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe, and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all Acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired.
0: Uh, Do we want to jump into acquisition category?
2: Yeah, let's do it. So for me, uh, I have this down as business line, uh, for, for new listeners to the show, we define that as, uh, people, technology, product, business line, asset, or other, because we leave ourselves the, uh, the right to do whatever the hell we want on the show. So, um, our show. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so in, in this one, you know, a lot of times we define uh, a product as like hey this is a, a new product you can um, you can sell to your existing customers like a, an Apple would come out with an iPhone after coming out with an iPod um, th- this for, for, um, for me is really something where, you know, it's a new marketplace with new supply, new demand, um, a, a new business model, and it's completely separately broken out on the balance sheet that they bought a new business here and they happen to learn a lot from it and, and really make it the, the cornerstone of, uh, of the company and, and grow from there. But, um, that, you know, they, they, they bought a wholly separate line of business and they kept it pretty separate.
0: Yep. Um. I don't have much to argue with there. I mean, literally, they report it as a separate business line on their financials, so um, it's kind of hard to argue with that. I uh, figured that's an easy one for me to jump in on. <laughs> I got nothing here. Yeah, no, no, no argument if, if our, our resident grizzled industry veteran agrees. So. <laughs> Moving on, uh, what would have happened otherwise? Um, this is interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, what if what if Expedia had had pulled the trigger? Yeah, right? that's sort of the obvious one, right? I, I I don't know, Drew. Drew, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, I,
1: like, I, with with deference to my friends at Expedia, I'm not sure they would have done as good a job managing this business as as, as booking did, as Priceline did, rather. Um, and the know,
0: the good job was just leaving it alone, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, this is effectively a VC play. You know, I guess the yeah. better question is, you know, why did why was Glenn Fogle the one
2: who uh, sniffed out this deal? You know, where were all the great Silicon Valley, yeah, uh, greatest travel industry VC of investor
0: of all time. Um, yeah,
2: it does seem uh, who who was the intermediary that they sold it to? It was like a was it a private private equity firm? No, I, I I
0: think I could be wrong on this, but I think it actually was just a, a a group of of private um individuals, uh private investors in Europe um that Gert knew.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like their uh the opportunity cost for them is the real story here. Why yeah. <laughs> you know, why let it go? But I I think um this might be a good time. Drew, when we were preparing for this episode, you mentioned um, sort of a difference between Expedia's M&A strategy and Priceline's M&A strategy, and that Priceline sort of took these risks on early kind of subscale businesses that they saw potential in. And Expedia tends to to, um, buy more established things that um, have a very reasonable growth trajectory from there that they can add to their portfolio. Um, Does it seem like I'm getting that right? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you know. I think that definitely characterized a
1: lot of the the deals that that made Priceline successful: Active Booking, uh, Agoda, um, and and again, I think we you know you saw the strategy we just talked about from Priceline of buying these businesses and effectively, you know, being a uh, largely a passive investor, uh, holding them accountable for growth, giving them capital to continue to grow, um, but but not taking too active a role in in the management and integration of those businesses. You know, Speedy, by contrast, has has built a single dominant you know scale platform, and I we you know we should you too here, right? I mean, it's an yeah. you know, almost $20 billion business. Uh, you know, <laughs> they do, what, 350 million room nights to the, you know, 500 uh, that Booking.com did, or Priceline did last year. So it is a, you know, a real formidable player in this category. Um, but their approach has been different. You know, they've bought... Uh, they bought Travelocity, they bought Orbitz, uh, they bought uh, What If in, in Australia, you know, and they yeah. bought these players and their strategy has largely been to say, we have a, uh, you know, a, a tech platform that is incredibly mature, we put huge investments in, uh, and we now want to start to get scale out of it. And so they buy effectively these, these storefronts, you know, replace them with with superior economics, superior technology you know, see some gains in terms of uh, you know, productivity, both click-through rate and 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 their ability to monetize it. Um, but have taken a much more active role in in the management of the businesses. Yep. Hmm.
2: Um and then and then another question is you know did Priceline need a capital infusion uh, I'm sorry did Booking need a capital infusion from Priceline or or what if on their own they just sort of re- continually reinvested their um their profits in the business in sort of this aggressive Amazon style way is there any way they could have grown to to be the scale that they are today or would they have sort of lost out in in the arms race of competition
1: uh, you know it sure seems to me like like Booking could have done this on its own. Uh, yeah. Booking didn't need Priceline to achieve the scale that it did, um, and I think again, it's a testament to you know Glenn's judgment and 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 acumen in finding the company and seeing the opportunity here. Um, but I think that's an opportunity that was available to any financial investor.
0: Yeah. I, at the same time, I think. Um... This might be a good lead to tech themes. <laughs> We're always just trying to get into tech themes on this show. Um, you rename the show, yeah? <laughs> tech themes. <laughs> the, I think that would be pretty boring. Um, the uh, you know, this is the thing about marketplaces, though. And um, well, I'll just I'm just you, going to have in. more than one tech theme. Yeah. Tech <laughs> I'm just going to dive in. I mean, <laughs> to me, um, this is such a wonderful illustration of of everything that is both incredibly challenging and incredibly, you know, beautiful about marketplaces, which is they're a total slog to get started. I mean, thinking about those early days, bringing all this very fragmented, very disparate supply all across Europe, a supply of hotels onto the booking.com platform and Gert sending out postcards to to everybody. Um, You know, you can totally see why Expedia would look at that and say like, ugh, you know, <laughs> that seems hard. Uh, and the business model doesn't seem as good as ours. Um, but then the thing is, you know, once you get to a certain scale point, um, and I think this is the value of of capital in in building marketplaces, is accelerating to get to that scale point. Then it tips, right? And then it's just the defensibility. We were talking about why you haven't seen more major companies built in travel online. I mean, it, the defensibility is so great in booking. Like, because everybody is on it on both sides of the marketplace. There's no incentive for either side to go anywhere else because the experience isn't going to be as good.
2: Yep. And it really is an argument for for consolidation too. I mean, I think we've said this before, but one of the reasons why we set out to do this show is understand when MA works and when it doesn't so that when we're involved in the earliest stages of companies, like, we can try and figure out how do we steer the ship if the goal is to get acquired by uh, by one of these bigger companies? Like, where can we nicely fit? And it sure seems like marketplace businesses are so well-suited. Like, whether you combine the business lines or not, you could look at... um um, Zillow and Trulia, or or more recently, and and here uh, here locally Rover and, and Dog Vacay. I mean, when you when you take a lot of supply and a lot of demand and the exact same value prop or a very similar value prop, and you can consolidate a lot of things onto a single platform and bring these things together, it seems like there's there's you know you, you take that flywheel that's already spinning so well, and yeah.
0: Do, do you had a counterpoint a counterpoint though?
2: <laughs> oh, I was gonna say. I mean, there, there
1: you know I think there is certainly pressure you know, if you talk to hoteliers, right, suppliers in this world, they're not stoked about this marketplace, yeah. right? Uh, there's no hotelier in the world who's like, OTAs were a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you're going to have some sympathy for them. You know, if you look at yeah. the stock chart of, you know, Hilton versus Priceline over this period of time, you yeah. can see why they might not be so excited. Well, well,
0: is that, I totally get that from Hilton and Marriott's perspective. But what about the 20-room villa in, um, you know, uh, right, uh, Romania, right. who had no way of acquiring customers
2: otherwise, or, or the dog sitter who wasn't yet dog sitting, or the you know Airbnb'er who wasn't yet utilizing that spare bedroom. Maybe I'm making an argument for unlocking. Um, you know unlocking value that was previously unlocked due to a lack of ability to find customers in in the sharing economy and it's it 's um you know certainly not uh, not as true if you 're commoditizing suppliers who are already running a business
1: it's you know you guys are bringing a great point right and you know another way of framing this is you know this discussion we 're having around o t a s shows. Let's say the challenges of the the business model of these kind of legacy hotel brands, right? Yep. Because the perspective of Marriott looks really different than the perspective even of a, a Marriott franchisee who actually owns their hotel. Yeah. The Marriott franchisee says, I I used to have to pay and, and just a slight digression, you know, the way hotel economics work by and large at, at the brands is, you know, you have a brand like Marriott that that is a franchiser, you know, that sells to somebody who owns real estate the rights to call their hotel a Marriott yep. and then generates some demand. You know, they'll take a commission, a, a, a franchise fee on that um, roughly, uh, you know, between call it, you know, six and 15% based on, on on their business. But they're taking that on all the reservations that happen at that hotel, not just the ones that got generated by Marriott. And over time, those costs have gone up to the point where many hotel owners are saying, wait a minute, it costs as much money to sell through Marriott, my my own quote unquote direct
0: channel as it does to go to an OTA. Right. And and Marriott.com is probably not doing much for me these days. Yeah, exactly. Um, interesting. Uh, well, so what about, uh, I, I feel like this is still on the the marketplace's tech theme, so I'm gonna take some more air time. Um, let's come back to Airbnb now. So, and, and, and HomeAway and, and, and others. D- to my mind, um, what they and, and Airbnb far more successfully than anyone else has done is taken this innovation, this marketplace innovation, um, and, and unlocked just a huge new amount of supply with it um, and and brought many of the advantages um, that we were talking about earlier in the show that were I think mostly enjoyed by the demand side by consumers and the OTA model. Uh, as you were saying, you know, even with the agency model, a lot of supply is like uh eh, you know mixed feelings at best about it. Um, but brought Airbnb has brought this innovation to a whole new set of supply as well, where if I own a home that has an extra bedroom i'm just thrilled that Airbnb you know gets me an extra thousand dollars a month right totally
1: you know I think that's been airbnb's real innovation in this category right uh, I, there's a ton that we can you know can find like it's just amazing about that business but but to me the thing that's you know truly distinguishing about it is the way they created this whole new class of supply yeah. uh, and supply that was really exciting like if i go stay in new york i'd much rather stay in a cool apartment in the east village you know than in and, a and, 900 you know, night. restaurant and have a kitchen you know <laughs> than getting stuck in times square yeah airbnb or, made all that possible in a way that wasn't true in the past
0: or the 900 a night holiday inn yeah, or I I th-
1: th- that's right <laughs> Jeez, <laughs>
0: <laughs> brutal <laughs> um uh I mean that's to me this acquisition um, and this whole industry really just um, is such a good example and pure example of of you know the power and dynamics of marketplaces yeah that's what I got for tech themes. <laughs> one, one of the things I was thinking about um and i wasn't you know as, as
1: I kind of tried to put this together and we prepared for this um, was what would it take to to challenge booking.com you know, mm. if, if you think, you know, building this marketplace is about gathering mm. enough demand uh, to make this whole thing work, could you compete with them, right? So, you know, again, today, Booking.com has the advantage of having done this for, what, 20 years. You know, they today generate half a billion room nights. Uh, they spend $3.5 billion per year in marketing. But wow. could somebody else go do that? You know, yeah. uh, could, could you begin to compete yeah. with them to, to generate that level of demand? Uh, you know, and I guess the, you know, potential the person i was able to identify who looks like they're at least making a run at it is trivago right today trivago is spending 800 i think 800 and, and million and they're expedia owned right expedia's uh, i think has a 40% stake in trivago it's got a okay. public float and the uh, the founders still own part of it but yeah it's hmm. it's part of the expedia portfolio um but taking the same playbook in in the sense of can we get enough demand here yep. to make this you know a, a platform that gets some lock in yep but the following question being yeah, like, and God, could, could, is, you know, if you wanted to go spend three and a half
2: billion dollars a year on marketing, <laughs> could, could you do it? You know, could you What's, find enough channels? Absolutely. It's funny that this works in. Yeah, this is one tech theme I was thinking about too. Um, after talking to a, a former um, Expedia marketing person, um, he, he, this person was mentioning that uh, the Travago is uh, like absolutely exceptional. At, uh, at digital marketing and really understanding exactly when to be bidding um, uh, bidding on Google understanding exactly you know how high value that traffic is how high value that keyword is at super high fidelity and instrumenting it all the way from you know placing the ad all the way through the 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 end of the um, the transaction and continuing to track that lifetime uh, lifetime customer value over time and it seems like the way that you kind of win on this is better and better digital marketing and I think the the um, uh, there was actually a lot of articles back around the time of this acquisition that um, booking had had sort of been incredibly successful because of their mastery of being able to buy keywords on Google and we're, we're, we're there's definitely an opportunity to do better than that now as Google's tools get more and more sophisticated for this and I think that um, you know that the it, it it goes to show that uh Google really does take a tax on on e commerce broadly, and with this as an enormous category like it, i i would love to see travel ever as a revenue driver for google and I think one one um one way that airbnb is disrupting here, and I wonder if somebody else can disrupt um in the in the hotel uh world rather than just in the in the kind of specialized airbnb world is can you acquire supply, I'm sorry, can you acquire demand, so travelers, and retain them as your customers without them going back to Google and you having to reacquire them? Mm. And Google being the central source of where people go to to search for travel stuff all the time. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that Airbnb has played that role so far,
1: right? And I think, you know to your point uh, a moment ago, David, you know, the fact that they have this unique access to supply has allowed them to take that that kind of position. Um, there's a question of, can you do it in hotels, particularly given the fact that you know, it's it's relatively commoditized. That hotel inventory now shows up on lots of different channels. Yep. But I think yeah. one other thing to understand, um, and, and it's worth getting into, you know, thinking about the consequences for why it worked for booking.com is is what allows them to spend at that level of scale. And the you know, same for Trivago, mm-hmm. right? What allows them to spend at that level of scale isn't simply the instrumentation or the fact, you know, they have three and a half billion dollars <laughs> to spend. It's that they get the conversion, Yeah. right? The reason, yep. because all these guys look at, what's my ROI? You know, and, and again part of that is spend, but but really the biggest driver, you and, and also commission rate. What's my take rate around an individual transaction? Yep. But the thing that has the greatest delta, the thing that really drives performance is when somebody came to the site, did they buy? Yep. You know, yep. booking.com's innovation wasn't that it looked better. I mean, frankly, you look at it and it's like, gosh, why are there so many things flashing?
0: <laughs> the thing's flashing because like that's what gets me to buy. Yeah. Well, and this is um I feel like this is such a a powerful concept. Uh Bill Gurley actually has a whole blog post about this about conversion, especially for marketplace businesses. It is the biggest lever that you have. I mean, we learned this lesson, you know, at Rover, uh in that um the product that you're building when you're at a marketplace company is is essentially, you know, the matching of supply and demand and the consummation of that match. And so your job is to is to maximize the rate of consummation of that match. Um, and and if if you don't realize that, you can start investing in all sorts of things that are, you know, not going to be driving your business. Yep. And I guess going back to the Expedia, why, why did
1: Expedia miss this? Yep. In 2002, it wasn't obvious that this was a marketplace.
0: Ah, you know, in 2002,
1: you had big portal tenancy deals that drove a lot of traffic, you know, and I signed... You know, a ten million dollar deal with Yahoo or with AOL, saying I'm going to get you know this spot, uh, and it's going to be true for the next year, and I'm relatively indifferent—not indifferent, but but have less pressure around what the performance of any individual session was.
0: Right, because you were just getting that stream of clicks no matter what, uh, and you weren't paying on a uh, variable basis for them. Right. got
2: mm-hmm. it. Hmm.
0: Interesting, interesting. So, so one thing. Um, uh, actually, Ben, were there any other tech themes you want to cover?
2: Yeah, I got I got one quick one before we move into grading. Uh, So do that. Um, selfishly, like one of the things we do at Pioneer Square Labs is is look around at other business models and try and figure out like, can this be done in a new space? And something that I think that that I've been paying a lot of attention to recently is as as uh, this generation shifts toward a more on-demand, less committal life. You know, this agency model makes a ton of sense. The idea that, yeah, I'll book that stuff. But like, if I don't want to go, like I get a refund. I'm, you know, my credit card doesn't get charged until I stay in that hotel. And there's policies of 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it's going to be. But like, you know, you're 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 afforded a bunch of flexibility and you can sort of plan ahead. And then like, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. So I think a, a, a super interesting um, lens to think about new company creation is, you know what else can you take that people are like hamstrung into committing to right now, and allow mm-hmm. them much more flexibility, and and change the business model dynamics within the industry to allow them that? Because you know, as as we talked about before, the best consumer experience will continue to win. Yep. So totally. That's all I got for tech teams.
0: Well, if uh, if we had some answers, we should you know we could start <laughs> some. <company>. Same <laughs> challenge, slightly
1: in this case, uh, Ben. Absolutely. Uh, Oh, I don't. I don't, think
0: the, I don't think the best <laughs> consumer experience. Best consumer experience
1: is what won here. At the very least, we, like, we need to think broadly about what best consumer experience is, because um, it wasn't like that. Booking.com had the you know, most attractive, best designed website in the sense of UX. Um, lots of people would say it's not that attractive. Yep but it was best in the sense that it delivered the most conversions yeah, right yeah. and and the reason it delivered the most
2: conversions was it had the most best inventory you know and so um which which i like at least to me that's that's the consumer experience right like you're you're able to get what you want um and i think maybe a secondary thing here is probably the 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 lack of commitment to it but um to me being able being matched with the correct supply is is just a um you know a facet of of the consumer experience sure Point um, taken. So, so, you know, many levers to, to have it play here to, um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's the, it's
0: the same, um, you know, it's the same thing. It, it's a, uh, we're, we're quibbling over the definition of consumer experience, but it's, you know, in the same way, like, I don't think anybody, uh, you know, apologies to our friends at Facebook, but, and especially LinkedIn, but nobody would argue that those are like the best, most beautifully designed sites. Right. But you get, as a consumer of them, you get your experience fulfilled best of what you're looking for, which is, you know, I'm looking for professional networking on LinkedIn and social networking right. on Facebook. Um, it kind of, you know, what they look like is almost secondary, um, but it's what I get out of them.
2: Yeah, so so Drew, I'll... Uh, i, I uh... In thinking through this a little bit more, if if consumer experience is the umbrella of of things that enable you to win, um I I think you're right that that being matched with the correct supply is far more important than you know your your requirement to commit.
0: Yeah. So, uh okay, one last one uh sort of sidebar I wanted to cover before we grade it, um and, and it might inform grading. Uh Drew, I'm super curious. One thing we haven't really talked about on the episode thus far. We've talked about OTAs, we've talked about the various flavors of them, um, you've talked about Airbnb, what role does Metasearch play in this world? I mean, you were at Kayak for a long time, um, and and Metasearch sort of takes a, a wholly different approach, it's a layer on top, it's not a marketplace itself, um, What what is that role in the ecosystem here?
1: Well, I think it comes down to, um, actually the point that we were just talking about w- with Ben, which is how do I make a decision? How do yeah. I find what I want? And and what's the separation between that decision-making process, i.e. I want to stay at this hotel or take this flight on these dates and the transaction process. I'm going to complete this booking. Um, and, you know, meta search, vertical search, you know, w- was an abstraction of, again, that decision-making process. And one of the things that was really powerful about it, I think has allowed it to grow very quickly is it, um you know, it limited its scope. Right, at Kayak, mm-hmm. it was like we have the most amazing website. It's two pages long, yeah. right? It's a front door. Where you ask a question, and then it's a bunch of answers that you can find the one you want, and you're out. You know, mm-hmm. like you know, things moving through a goose was the metaphor uh, that, that, <laughs> we, that we talked about. Uh, you know, I I think you talk about um are uh, friendly, friendly, friendly show here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know you have advertisers. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs>
1: uh, no, you know, Travago did it one better, right? You look at Travago, it's like it's a one page website. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's all JavaScript. You start typing in. You know, results start to render, you know, there's there's few so few things that that, that you have to interact with. And, and again, the benefit of that for them is wow, how quickly can I move from a visitor to a, to a revenue event?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. um, all that
1: leads to uh, to really effective monetization, really clear visibility too, right? I mean, the the point you're making, Ben, on uh, on how well Trivago does at tracking both initial monetization and the repeat visitor rate, all that is possible uh because because all you know, all those events happen within the same session. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know uh, if I
0: answered your question. Yeah, no, no, not. no. That's that's great. And uh, so, so I guess for for the meta search layer, um, it does greatly improve the customer experience. And what the meta search folks have said is, we're not going to monetize at the transaction level, at the marketplace level, we're going to take a, essentially an advertising, a, you know, a customer acquisition fee uh, from the marketplaces themselves. Yeah. So, it's, it's you
1: know, all the, the the kind of mental model, if you will, for Meta was Google. You know, yep. we're going to be a vertical search engine. We're going to get paid on a CPC basis, you know, and um, we're going to get paid by the the various marketplaces or... or by the bookings members.
0: and the Orbitz's and the Expedia's themselves. Yeah.
1: Now that, that you know, those lines have gotten blurry over time. Yep. And the big driver that or I think one of the big drivers that that, that created that was, was mobile, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, on the browser where you're in know, a desktop in the browser, you had a bunch of windows are open. You could do a search, you know, you could then spawn separate windows to complete a transaction. You know, most websites had were, were pretty well designed from an e-commerce standpoint. Uh, you know, you could look at, at at what the conversions were from leads out of a meta search into an OTA. That broke down, especially early on in mobile, where um, uh, folks had poorly designed mobile booking pages. Um, and in an app, you know that 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 process going from one app to the next was much yeah. more convoluted. Yeah. And so the consequence was, meta search engines started to build what they described as instant book. You know, effectively, uh. they would allow you to complete a transaction. They would use <laughs> a book API. Uh, so they were calling into the OTA or the marketplace to complete the transaction, but it it happened within their environment. Within the amount. Hmm. and now the and are they
2: actually to... getting paid on the transaction fee then, rather than just sort of for the the ad placement? Yeah the the, the reality of those the, those transaction fees is that
1: they've always been a little bit blurry. Like you know, a lot of the CPC deals had some kind of performance guarantee, or you know, hmm. you would get paid on a CPA and you know, normalize that back to CPC. So you know, the, the, it wasn't. All that different to go from you know the the meta search type trans, uh, agreements to to the instant book type agreements. The thing that was harder about it, and I think instant book has had a relatively mixed track record. You know, if you look at, at TripAdvisor's stock performance, you can you know their financials, you can see the challenges that that instant book has had. Um, it has had a huge impact on on, on TripAdvisor's monetization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we played around with it at Room 77. You know, Kayak has done some of it, um, but it has not not taken that much root in the, you know, in, in among search agencies, right? Like it has, it has not become that dominant. And I think one of the big reasons is, um, it's actually pretty hard to complete these transactions, right? Like you think yeah. of sort of all the edge cases that happen when you're going to complete a booking, you know, the credit card fails, the room's no longer available, uh, you know, all those kinds of issues, you know, but the packet gets lost, like for whatever yeah. reason, you know, it doesn't, the transaction doesn't complete. And it's if such you're a doing considered that purchase
0: for the consumer too, right? I mean, you're spending hundreds of
1: dollars here. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and it's much harder to, to deal with those edge cases if it's you know somebody else's book API than, yep. than if it's happening in your own environment.
0: Interesting. Um, okay. I feel like we have the full picture now of the online travel industry. <laughs> Should we grade it? <laughs> or, or at least as much as you can get in an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> online travel industry in one hour or less.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on grading, or at least I certainly don't. Um, I'm not sure that there was something that was more successful that we've done other than Next. Like, this was a company that um, was... Oh, was whoa, more- are you going higher
0: than Instagram?
2: I think so. Wow. I, think so. I know. I mean, I to the... Because I look at it this way. Like, Instagram wasn't really company saving for Facebook. Like, Instagram has become an incredible boon, Um, but would Facebook be, you know, completely irrelevant if it weren't for Instagram? Uh, I mean, Instagram helped them inform the mobile strategy and like lots more, you know, young people interact more per day on Instagram. But in, in, in the way that, um, I think that, Apple would have been totally hosed without buying Next, uh, I, I think that Priceline may have been totally hosed without buying Booking, and Booking has turned into a gigantic business. Like If you look at... I mean, just comparing Priceline and, and Expedia, um, Priceline's market cap is $92 billion, Expedia's is about twenty two point six. billion. Over two-thirds of that $92 billion comes from Booking.com, going from $130 million acquisition to um, you know uh, responsible for a market cap of 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 60 billion plus uh a plus wow
0: you heard it here first booking.com bigger than instagram <laughs> <laughs> uh, i love it um wow i hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about that uh, we'll, we'll let drew have the last word here but um <sighs> do i think that this is better than instagram um yeah i mean you made a pretty compelling case there uh and I haven't checked the latest instagram financials I mean I guess so here's my my knee-jerk reaction to that but i think is the wrong one is i would say well yeah that's true but like think about market size like instagram is everybody in the world but then I'm like Wait a minute, travel is everybody in the world too. <laughs> well, you know, there are at least a huge portion of it, and it's and it is monetizable at a vastly higher rate than, you know, um social networking apps. Um so yeah, wow. Um I I uh I don't know that I'm willing to go better than Instagram, but I'll go at least as good as Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think back through all of our episodes. We have so many at this point, but, um, and the ones that are popping to mind, I think I stack rank next. I mean, as we said on that show, it, it literally was a trillion dollars in, in, you know, revenue that was created by that acquisition. Um, and then, uh, and then I think Instagram and booking, you know, are both, uh, of a scale that, um, that are, are, you know, pretty incredible. Not a trillion dollars yet, but, um, uh, maybe someday.
1: What, what was the purchase price on Instagram?
0: Was it a billion? A billion One billion dollars. And what, what did you guys put as the
1: current value of Instagram?
0: Well, when we did the episode, which was about two years ago at this point, right, Ben? Um, yep. uh, I think there was an. Analyst report. It was from Citibank. Yeah, from Citibank that valued it. What around
2: thirty-five billion dollars? Somewhere in there. I don't. I don't know why I remember the number nineteen or twenty, but it's you know uh, that big. That yeah. So so
0: sort of on the order of that big in a time frame of call it three years post acquisition. And so here we have sixty billion dollars after ten years. So all right. Drew, school us all.
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm you know I'm with Ben on this one. Uh,
0: you
1: know, I guess it's a little bit of you know home team pride, right? You, know, you call the travel industry guy. Of course, I got to tell you, this is the best deal ever. <laughs> Better than next. Uh, okay, and <laughs> you know, hopefully rational as well. But uh, yeah, I think like it's just phenomenal, right? Um, you know, to think that Jeff Boyd had a, a you know 100x increase in 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 the value of Priceline stock as yeah. the CEO, like that is just breathtaking. Uh, you know, going through the numbers and looking at the level of growth that these guys have been able to achieve over, over that duration, staggering. And and yeah, I guess one of the things that to me, you know, just uh, it, it is a little bit humbling. I remember talking to Jeff Boyd at one point in time, you know, I don't remember when it was, but yeah. And Jeff was the CEO uh, sorry, of Priceline Group uh, of Price until, Line.
0: until uh, well, there was a long history, but CEO or chairman of Priceline Group until until Glenn took over in the beginning of 2017. And they and remember, talking to
1: him. What are you guys going to do next year? You know, talk about your plans. This is, a you know, focus right the industry, you know, big industry kind of confab.
0: And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to do what we did last year and a little <laughs> bit more. That's what we're going to go do. But going to Booking's like, gonna grow 40%. That's and, a pretty good plan. Uh, Just like last you year. You should yeah. keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, you should keep doing that. Um, wow. Uh, well, there we have it. Um, the history of either the second or third best acquisition of all time on the internet. So <laughs> uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us, Drew. This has been awesome. Guys, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Okay,
2: real quick. Carbouts. Sweet. So uh, one thing I watched last week uh, that was linked on Daring Fireball and was really awesome to kind of leave on in the background and, and do some stuff around the around the apartment was uh, Scott Forrestall appearing publicly for the first time to talk about, um, anything related to his old gig at Apple, um, running the, uh, the iPhone project, um, when he was live at the computer history museum a few weeks ago. And, uh, there's a a Facebook video that we'll, we'll link to here, but it is, it is, it starts with an hour of a, a super interesting panel with some of the, um, folks that worked under Scott on the the original iPhone project. This is all sort of commemorating the 10 year anniversary and Scott just telling amazing stories of um, how the iPhone came to be a lot of sort of never, never been revealed stuff, uh, personal interactions with Steve, a time when Steve jobs in his words uh, uh, saved his life quite literally from, from uh, he was incredibly ill and, and, um, um Steve and, and some incredible acupuncture sort of saved his life. And, uh, it's it's really cool. Like if you're into um, if you're into this podcast or you're into uh, internet history podcast, Brian McCullough's um, show, you will really really like this interview.
0: I, it's been on my to watch list, and uh, um, it just sounds amazing. I mean, this
2: is I, th- I think this is Scott's first public appearance since um, uh regarding technology yeah he yeah. he um i think spoke extremely briefly when i think they won a tony he oh he, that's he, right he produced that's a right Broadway play. that's right yeah yeah uh, but but never about about any of this
0: since since the uh you know
2: apple keynote stage um and and cool. the funniest thing is it looks like he's wearing the same shirt I mean, <laughs> they like make fun <laughs> of that but like the dude has a style Love it. Hey, you got
0: to you got to have a calling card. <laughs> yep. Um mine is uh so Jenny and uh and, and Jenny's dad, my father-in-law Gary and also shout out to Gary fan of the show um went to see The Big Sick in movie theaters last weekend and uh it was great. If you haven't seen this movie yet, uh it is uh it was both the funniest and the best well most well done and you know, most touching movie. You know, I think I've seen um, in many, many years. Best movie I've seen since The Force Awakens for sure. Wow, um, high it, praise. It, uh, it deserves it. Uh, I think it's got like a ninety-eight on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. Um, and uh, it, it's great. And it's and it's Camille, uh, Nad- Nadjiani, Um Apologies if I butchered that too, uh, but uh, who who plays to in Nashville and Silicon Valley, and it's uh, it's the you know mostly true story of him and his wife and how they met and their uh, their lives together, and it's just it's wonderful. Wow, cool. Um, Drew, do you
1: do you want to join in the fun? Sure, yeah. So I've been uh, I've been into uh, I, I like uh, email newsletters, you know, Jetsetter, like. Can't can get away from. It. But uh, I've been loving uh, uh money stuff from Matt Levine. It's a little more kind of markets oriented than 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 pure tech. Uh, but he is just an incredibly funny writer uh, and and super insightful on uh you know what's going on in the markets. You know a lot of kind of blockchain commentary. Um you know what's moving on with the, going on in the VIX. People are worried about not being worried enough. Uh, he's got these uh great great segments. So definitely worth
2: checking out. Cool, um, awesome, we'll do. Well, uh. I mean, I think that's it. Drew, where can our listeners uh, find you on the internet? Uh, my Twitter handle is Drew Pats.
1: D-R-E-W-P-A-T-S. Uh, that's probably the best way to track me down. Great.
2: Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on the show. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure. And I know our listeners will appreciate um, uh, some some actual domain expertise and, and insight for a change, too.
0: <laughs> Rather than Ben and me speculating wildly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe.
0: So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy... They can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers.
2: Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the
0: environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds.
2: Yep. If you your company or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com/acquired, that's c r u s o e cloud.com/acquired or click the link in the show notes. Listeners, if you are still listening and you are not one of those people that, uh, like, like me really, that, that sort of turns it off at the end of a podcast, please take our survey. Pop open the show notes right now, five to 10 minutes. You just finished a podcast. You probably have a couple minutes more of free time. You should do it. And uh, and hopefully you, every single one of you, but it can only be one of you, will win a pair of AirPods. So um, thanks so much, guys, and uh, and have a great day.
0: <laughs> thanks, everyone.